Hey there, my name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to prescribe you with a universal answer, but to help you find and define your own answer to this question. On the 31st episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Karabi. Alex is an author. His most recent book is called On Relationality, a leadership coach and co-founder of Yellow. This conversation with Alex simultaneously explores and exemplifies many of the concepts from his new book, which itself explores the work of the philosopher Martin Buber. In this episode, we delve into the meaning of building greater intimacy with others and life itself, exploring ways of relating to people that transcends manipulation and our typical defenses. Our discussion uncovers the profound sense of aliveness, feeling and depth when we meet others and ourselves in the moment where we presently are. Moreover, we reflect on the alchemical potential of exploring the aspects of ourselves that we have numbed. If you find yourself yearning for a deeper connection and greater intimacy in a world often characterized by superficial interactions, if you're tired of performing and acting at the expense of genuine connection and vitality, this conversation will provide you with ample food for thought. You'll gain insights into reshaping your approach to relating with others, as well as fresh ideas to explore and incorporate into your own good life. This conversation was an absolute joy for me to be a part of. And if you enjoy this conversation, please like, share and subscribe. And if you're on the podcasting platforms, please leave a review as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 31st episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Alex, thank you very much for joining me here on the What is a Good Life podcast today. Um, after our conversation the last time and, and having started to read on uh, relationality, your, your latest book, uh, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. Mm, yeah, me too. Happy to be here. So the first question, as I tend to have, Alex, is, is there a question you're trying to answer as you move through life? Yeah. And of course, knowing that that question <clears throat> is coming, I have thought about it a little bit. For me, the way I like to think about questions, or at least useful questions, is that uh, it's perhaps not so much about answering them in terms of getting to an answer as it is about responding to it. Um, but how one responds to that question in each and every moment can be different depending on context and experience. And so the way I like to think about it is, yeah, what are, what are the questions that are that, are, that I'm responding to or perhaps want to respond to? And one of them might be like what's here i find a really interesting question what is here <laughs> i see as well right but like what's really here and for me one can interpret that at so many different levels or respond to it at so many levels uh, what you what you sense what you feel what you're thinking what you're feeling in between people uh, in the space between this is perhaps where the the theme of the book becomes relevant um, and i find that the more one asks that question and the more one is open to it the deeper one can go as well there's no there's no end to that inquiry uh, another question i find very <laughs> stimulating both intellectually but also in an embodied way is like, what, what is this? 
<laughs> what what even is all of this that we're experiencing this thing we call life wow what what is this so those would be two questions that come to mind man uh, the reason why i started smiling when you said that what's here question and you repeated it a couple of times i don't know what it's like for people listening but uh that dropped me like i, I don't know that got me right in the feels if you know mm. what i mean <laughs> like yeah. I, I just felt sinking into into a moment. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I could sense that as well. And it's, I guess, the question just invites invites actually feeling what what is here. And I think that speaks to why one of the reasons why I find that inquiry so interesting is that when we ask that question, then we realize more, and you sense more. And you get in touch with things that you otherwise are distracted from or, or numb to. And uh, yeah, there's no, as I said, there's there's no end to it. But what's here? And that's maybe one thing that I both personally and professionally find almost as a, a calling, which is how much more of life can I get in touch with within myself? in my environment, in my context, where am I numb or blind and where can I get in touch with more of what's here? And not from a, not because of, uh, from a craving impulse, but simply because of the inherent beauty of being intimate with life. Being intimate with life, uh, uh. what, uh, how would you kind of elaborate further on that? I think there's a way in which many of us, and I find myself in these positions from day to day and much more in previous eras of my life, but it's easy to live on the surface. And you're more or less skating along on top of life. And yet there's a way in which one can live where you're sinking into kind of what you just said there, where it's like a dropping in. And for me, that, that dropping in is becoming more intimate with what's here. And being intimate, there's a way in which that term can be interpreted as being nice or even romantic, I think is maybe how we use that word in many parts of life today when you're intimate you're intimate with your partner and nothing or no one else i think that's a very limited interpretation of the notion of intimacy which really means to feel and be felt i think and if one can open oneself up to that mutual process you, you you begin to experience more where the imagine you know you have a, a pie chart of experience right and one can expand that pie chart but also feel perhaps the you know like on a computer menu sometimes some of the options are grayed out you know you can't select certain things I think some of us 
as we've gone through life, some emotional qualities or some experiential states kind of grayed out. They're not permitted for various reasons. And so if we can both expand our, our pie chart, but also feel the areas in which we haven't felt before, all of a sudden you're getting more in touch with what it, what it actually means to be here. Because we're not, I don't think we're here to experience just one or two pie slices. We're here to experience it all. But that means opening oneself up to the, the danger, the vulnerability, the inevitability of being changed. And being seen. And being invited out into the world. And all of these things, I think, from myself and many of us, are, are uh, you know, filled with, with dread or fear or worry. But if we can feel those things and feel through them, then it's like, yeah. The way I describe it is really you get in touch with life. In, in Swedish and German, and I think other Germanic languages, there's two words for knowing. Right? In English, you pretty much use the word know for everything. But in Swedish, you if you know the capital of France, you would say, Jag vet, so I know. But if you know someone, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't use that same verb. Instead, you would use the verb känna. In German, it's kennen. Which actually, apart from meaning, meaning no, it also means to touch. And I think this is what I'm talking about here and what we're exploring, which is like actually touching, touching life in all of its aspects. Not looking at it from a distance, but like feeling it. My first of all, you, you have a very soothing way of talking. <laughs> I, found, I found that deeply relaxing. I'm sorry to interrupt it if anyone is, uh, is, uh, is enjoying maybe it's, that. Maybe it's my, my newborn son reading bedtime stories. I'm practicing right, that right. muscle, perhaps. Yeah. But this is, uh, I love this. This is uh, the element you're talking about here, though, as well, the it's almost that vulnerability to to be, you know, when you're talking about graying out some of the options, it's almost then, and when you're talking about to be seen by somebody else as well, there's almost like a fear of being seen or there's oh. a fear of engaging in certain elements of ourselves or certain elements of being in relation to somebody else. And almost like a a sense of control that we... <laughs> You almost have to to let go of a little bit mm -hmm. in order to to engage with the the senses that you're you seem to be describing here. Mm, yeah, right. Yeah, or the the illusion of of control. Yeah, because right. we can't really control anything. But yeah, when when we live in the on the sidelines, that gives a certain sense of comfort perhaps but yeah being seen it's quite interesting isn't it that being seen can be filled with so much fear actually for many of us and i think that speaks to the fact that whether in family situations or given the structures of our modern society uh, 
really being seen unequivocally and unconditionally without any, say, any, any demands to do anything are actually few and far between. And you can even see this with children too. I think there's a, there's a way in which one can relate to children in which you are implicitly expecting something from them, either a smile or for them to behave a certain way. And, and simply to be there with others, whether it's children or, or adults, and be there in a certain stillness and openness, I think is one of the greatest gifts one can give another. You know, it's something we, I think, very rarely do in you know our very busy lives but also something that we're not trained to do and it's also something that brings up a lot of stuff for example when you sit in meditation anyone who's actually done that will know that that's not always a pleasant experience <laughs> <laughs> but it's right it's it's presented that way right Productivity to hack. Pay witness to a psychopath sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a whole arena of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and yet it's portrayed, right, as this ultimate productivity hack to still your mind and focus and all of these other things. But really, once you give yourself space to just be, then all of this stuff that's looking to be digested starts showing up. And the same thing, I think, happens when we're simply there with others. But it can be actually an, an exponential effect there because many of our wounds are relational. And so when we are simply there with others, many of those defenses against those old wounds start showing up. Uh, I'm going down a bit of a, a rabbit hole here, but my where we started here was just being with another uh, yeah is is an is an immense gift of the highest order i i couldn't agree more with that i honestly think it's a it's an absolute privilege to ever enter that sp and i'm not trying to make it too almost like a clinical pr i'm entering this space and now i'm stepping out of this space and I'm, I'm not saying it's as as clear cut as that but there's something really beautiful to sharing a space with somebody where there isn't a performative element to it or there isn't a a requirement from it other than for both parties to be literally that, <laughs> just to be. And I think there's such a considerable difference in the quality of that relationship or those moments where even the topic that could be discussed might be perceived as heavy, but the energy still feels light. And I, th I think there's some element to this where it's not, it, it feels so almost separate to how we usually relate to people that the quality of it is just like, it's unmistakable. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you. I think there's this, there's this element of life that in my, and, and, and how I perceive life when I, 
would classify a moment as almost being separate from time, hmm. of being separate from demands or almost an inefficient use of energy in maintaining a projection of myself for the other person doing it. Like, I don't think we realize just how easy it is almost to spot how much effort we're putting into conversations when you've experienced a different mm. type of relating. Yeah. Well, that reminds me both in what you're saying, but also how you're saying it. It reminds me of, uh, of course, one of the, the central notions of, of the book which is based upon the ideas of Martin Buber, a philosopher from the early 1900s. And uh, as you know, he, he lays out these two stances. He called them attitudes about how we relate in life. And he described one as the I-it stance, where you are relating to the other uh, with a through an instrumental approach, essentially, you're looking to use something from that encounter. Uh, it's very much a manipulative, not an influential manipulative, but like you want to manipulate the pen and move it around. That kind of attention, um, and you extract and you reduce that other person down to their characteristics, their qualities, or CV details, whatever else it might be. But you're kind of pinning down and extracting and essentially extracting the life from that encounter. <laughs> now, it's not that that is necessarily bad because there's situations in life where that's useful. If you're going to build a bridge, <laughs> you know, construct anything, uh, and even perhaps to a certain extent in certain situations that can be helpful with other people. But the tragedy is that we live so much of our life in this I-it stance, both in terms of relating to others, but also ourselves, where everything is about like that instrumental value and use. Uh, but then he proposed that there's other, there's this other way of relating, this other stance, which he called the I-thou stance. And here words become a bit tricky because in our language, at least in the English language, everything is subject object based. So I am doing this to that thing. But in the I thou encounter, objects disappear. It's not anyone doing something to somebody else. There are simply two subjects there. And in this space, time and space feel a bit different as you were alluding to previously. And you, you're immersed in the encounter with the other. You are there with them, feeling them as them. And yet crucially not losing yourself along the way. It's not an ego death. It's simply a, a meeting in its purest sense. As so Buber pointed out that these were two ways in which we can relate. I like to see them not as black and whites, but more as a spectrum. And again, it's not that one is better than the other, it's a question of appropriateness and relevance. And so for me, the question becomes where and how can I relate more appropriately in this moment? Where can I open myself up to more of the I-thou 
if that feels called for. So uh, back to your question here about, you know, how we relate in much of life. I think these ideas at least can shed a light upon uh, how we interpret where we are and then how we might go about uh, changing how we are in relation to, to actually live more appropriately and therefore live more intimately. How do you kind of not see the balance of this, but even just when you were kind of saying the idea of appropriateness to I, it, and I, thou, are you aware, like, is there a sense that there'd be an awareness in the moment of changing tact or could you handle I, what could classically be defined as almost like I it scenarios with a, a flavor of the I thou like you know as in like a maybe a, a, a not a piercing glance but a connecting look like or a paying mm. attention mm. Do, do you know what I mean like how, how would you kind of see the, the that's the movement along that spectrum yeah yeah that's a beautiful question so Buber liked to say that one cannot, you cannot force an I-thou encounter. It, it comes to us by grace, as he said. So all we can really do is open ourselves up to it to create the conditions for the thou to meet us and for us to meet it. And so that becomes the question is like, where am I somehow holding myself back? Where am I protecting myself? Because one way I like to interpret it is that the I, it stance is quite a defensive posture in that it is an accumulation of protection strategies and defense mechanisms that we learn through life. And when we live exclusively within those patterns and strategies, as I said, it extracts life from it and it kind of flattens and deadens everything which is a necessary and very important response if one has lived through a lot of hurt or trauma because feeling all of the pain is overwhelming. And so by living in this more numb, flat world, we can make our way through life. But to become more intimate means facing everything. To become more intimate in terms of joy means becoming more intimate with pain. And so this then becomes a question in encounters it's not which which look can I give, although I I think by noticing how you're looking, maybe that will open something up. But it's more about where am I holding myself? Where am I tight? Where am I focusing on my own ideas and needs and wants here? And where can I let those things go? It feels to me like it's a a sense of like it's a how much like almost to what extent are we paying attention in the moment and not even just paying attention in the moment, but what are we erecting between ourselves and coming into contact with the present moment? Mm -hmm. Right. Beautiful. So whether if it's a perception of the other person, um, a a projection onto what the moment requires there can be so many 
almost these strategies that we employ, even when we're having conversations. I think, you know, when you mentioned like moving the pen around, manipulating the pen around, like I'm sure we can all relate to even conversations where we're maybe even sometimes trying to guide the conversation Mm -hmm. to a point that we can make. Or even if we're in the conversation and we think of something, we just put a pin in that and then wait for the person to, you know, they could talk for another minute or two and we go back to that very point, irrespective of what's been shared in the last minute or two. Right. I, I don't know. I think there's something really, you've mentioned this idea of, I think, almost taking the life out of a situation or deadening. And then even the word intimacy that you opened up with. I think there's so many ways in which we extract the possibility for connection in just ways in which we perceive or just the status quo of communicating or relating. Yeah. Reminds me of a quote from one of my teachers. He says that connection is our deepest fear and our deepest longing. (laughs) 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 What, what Alex like how did you how did you become curious about the way in which we relate like what did what was occurring for you or or how did this emerge in your life hmm. um, for me it began consciously at least i i've I've always been interested in the psychological and the philosophical from a strangely early age, I began diving into these areas, mostly as a hobby, never quite professionally, or I never gave myself permission to fully dive into these areas until my mid twenties, perhaps. But as I began to professionally uh, work with human development. I noticed eventually that there's ways in which one can engage with human development questions in a way in which is very much I it. Now, this was not my language before, right? But where everything is about growing and growing in terms of linear progression up into the right, right? You know, you have those <laughs> business graphs, right? It's all about going up there, up into the right. And particularly in the coaching world, right, which is one of the main threads of my work, there can be this kind of implied assumption that upward is better and upward means more money, more notoriety, more fame, more career success. And so the more I was kind of in that space, the more that didn't sit well with me for one thing. And the more I realized that actually what, what seems to actually provide a sense of fulfillment and and meaning and, and an okayness with being here, which I think is one of the hmm. most beautiful things to aim for actually in life. 
is to yeah. simply just be okay being here. Uh, that that's more a question of a spiral, and a spiral actually down. Not exclusively, but in terms of being capable of being with more of life, what really seems to make a difference there is revisiting, not in a kind of a self-flagellatory way, but simply because that's what you meet on your path. But meeting these themes that we circle around again and again, but the more we're able to do that at deeper and deeper levels, the more space starts opening up for, for more of life to meet us and we start moving forward towards things that actually give us a sense of aliveness and where we can be alive in return. So starting noticing these things and then along that path, it became clear that there's a way in which you can do all of this again in a very separate way where you as the coach or facilitator or practitioner, you can extend this to any role really, teacher, boss, leader, there's a way in which you can do that at a distance. So you're sitting here and the other person's over there and you're asking that other person, like, how are you feeling inside? And what do you notice? And, you know, seemingly deep questions as well. But there's a way in which you can relate from over here. And you're simply asking that black box over there, what's going on. Now that is immensely more helpful than not doing it at all. And yet it, it, it's not utilizing the immense potential of the relational space and the relational encounter. Because there's so much that shows up in the space between, let's say in this case, the client and the coach or the therapist, where if you start touching a particular theme, maybe there might be some fear or shame. And one can simply notice that shame, right? And that's, again, that's better than not noticing it at all. But something alchemical starts happening if you bring that into the relationship and you start actually exploring what it's like to feel and name and share that shame in the midst of another person. And for the practitioner to provide an unconditional space where that shame is met and not like met like a checkbox like oh yeah you're feeling shame but actually really like included in your experience and seeing and feeling that almost as if it were the first time for the other person because what this does is that it that that shame that perhaps was frozen for decades is given permission to be here and to be here with another person and that can unlock a profound amount of energy and insight and movement. And so it was when starting to kind of venture into this territory, uh, both through my own inquiry, but also through the work of Thomas Hubel is a name that comes to mind, has been profoundly important for me. Uh, NARM is another uh, therapeutic modality, which focuses on the relational space. And there's many others, but but these were some of my entry points into actually use using not in an instrumental way but simply using because it's there again what's here uh it's just so much that that came through through these explorations it almost sounds in that scenario that 
the relationship or almost the interaction between two people like the the quality of the space it can almost like just allow that shame to almost just appear and it can be held in the space without anyone not even using a tool or you know words it's like a permission has been granted almost by the presence and the the energy of the two people that's beautifully said yeah right i think that's that's one of the most mm, powerful for lack of a better word powerful mm, characteristics or quality that people can have in relationship i think particularly underrated in the leadership realm where most many of my clients are which is to exude and embody that i am here and i'm available to you and whatever is here is okay not not necessarily in terms of condoning or supporting what's here but simply giving a an an acceptance and allowance for what's here to be here and to actually meet that and to welcome what's here I really like how this, you know, when I asked at the very start, what question are you, you and, and, or, you know, some of the questions that you're exploring as you go through life and the, the sense of what's here and even just sinking into that and appreciating, you know, maybe even in a more expanded state, what potentially is here, then creating the environment that welcomes mm. what is here to be acknowledged whether explicitly or not with words, but just that there's a sense that this is okay. Because I think too much, again, with maybe the the attachment to the linear <laughs> line up to the top and top right hand corner of the screen, it's that when things uh, surface that are potentially seen as bad or not acceptable or shameful. We can never work with these things if they're never invited and we can never work with them. We can work with them in a way in which anger meets anger or judgment meets judgment. And obviously that won't really, <laughs> that won't really evolve our relationship with that much. But when, when their permission is given for anything to surface simply because what's here, it is here. <laughs> And then to allow that to exist, it's not about a judgment then of this should be or shouldn't be this way. It's like, ah, this is here. Mm. And then something can happen. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. Something can happen. And that's where movement starts to happen. It's when things are not allowed, when they're denied, when they're excluded, that's when they freeze. And when they freeze, yeah. they remain stuck. There's no movement. Right. And so permission even though it looks like nothing is perhaps what allows for change the most because it provides that space for that unwinding to happen, that melting to happen. And then that ice can turn into water and just flow. Yeah. It's very nicely put the, what do you think allows, and I, I'm not trying to characterize this too much again as I it to I thou, the mm. promised land, I thou. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but 
what do you think allows people to engage with more intimacy, more accept or engaging with what is here, more a sense of allowing what is here to be acknowledged? What are what do you think are kind of key parts in people's journeys in in the movement along the spectrum? Similarly to how Martin Buber says we can only open ourselves up to the the thou, right? We can't force it. I think it's the same when we talk about intimacy as well. And that there's a way in which that can become a target and something forced. Like now I'm going to be intimate here. <laughs> right. We're going to do it really well. I'm going yeah. to put all, put in all of my mental and emotional pushups to be really intimate. Just to let you know, I'm here for you now. Let's right. talk about emotional stuff. <laughs> That's how intimacy is done, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and to, to borrow from, uh, ideas from another thinker, Ian McGilchrist, he talks about the two brain hemispheres, which I think map pretty nicely onto the I it and the I thou, where the left hemisphere is all about kind of manipulating, controlling, breaking things down into parts and so on. And the right hemisphere attends to the world in a much more open uh, open way has a broader sustained attention it's looking for harmony context it understands metaphor and both we need both of these forms of attention which is what they are uh, however one yields one lends itself much better to intimacy than the other <laughs> right well, if you live in the left hemisphere alone i don't think you can be intimate because that is not the mode of its attention. You might be able to, to, to understand intellectually something, although that's a big question mark, even that. But in terms of what we mean by intimacy, being close with something, that is the realm of the, the right hemisphere. And why I'm saying this, back to your question, like what can we do to allow ourselves to be more intimate? I think this is the first thing to notice is that it is a quality of attention it's not a doing, it's a being there and opening oneself up to being affected and affecting the other. So the question becomes, what's in the way of that opening up? What's in the way of that touching and getting in touch with and feeling and being felt? And for me in the work I do, I've much of what I see as my work is to help resolve and dissolve the patterns and, and blockages and defense strategies that have been crucial for our survival and our belonging. But the cost of these strategies is that we, we are more distant from life. We're more separate from life, separate from others. And so becoming more intimate really means fe feeling, I think is the best word actually, to feel. And if you're feeling intimately, then you're very close to it. 
But the question is, where do I feel and where don't I feel? And I mean, just to use my own experience, for example, I live much of my life in a very numb, numb state. If you would ask me what I felt in my body, I couldn't really tell you. And if you asked me what I was feeling, it would probably be fine. <laughs> but I certainly was never angry, right? I'd never get angry. Uh, and I was only sad in very limited situations, but I wouldn't admit to it. And so much of my journey has been about getting in touch with the places in me that were numb and numb for good reasons and kind of feeling what that numbness was taking care of. And so an assumption that I hold in all work I do with people, which is that anything that shows up and particularly unuseful and helpful behaviors or patterns are there in service of something. They've been trying to take care of something for that individual or group often for decades and often they're trying to take care of something which can't be taken care of anymore but it's still kind of a a long protracted effort to help oneself and so this is the process the process is getting in touch with these numb places or otherwise triggered moments in life and instead of pushing them away and saying I don't want to deal with that or that's not my problem anymore that's your problem or whatever other excuse we come up with is instead to actually again welcome welcome those moments of being triggered for example or being scared or being numb and becoming curious and either within oneself or and or together with other people to provide that relational space to to unwind those those very tightly held strategies and this work is not necessarily easy because it means feeling the pain that you didn't or couldn't feel at the time <laughs> but there, for me and then the people i work with i notice it has an immense richness to it and the more you go about it the more you realize that even those painful difficult moments where you're feeling something that for 30 40 years was just frozen there's there's um not a satisfaction but a a richness i think is the best word almost a deliciousness without becoming too sadistic here but there's a deliciousness in actually feeling all the you know the 300 360 degree spectrum of that pie circle of of life and once you do that, then, and you kind of establish that as a practice, and this is a, a practice, right? This is not something I or many people I know have mastered, but one can practice this, which is to invite and include and welcome those moments of, of being triggered or numbness. And instead of that being something to run away from, it's something to get excited about. It's like, wow, now I got triggered. It's like, wow then there's more material yeah. here to work with. Amazing. Let's explore this because I have a responsibility not only to me as a human being, but I have a responsibility to the other people in my life that I am committed to. And I even have a responsibility, I think, with life itself. 
to actually include and onboard these difficult moments and to transmute them. Because once I do that, then I can begin to be more present. I can feel more of myself and other people, which means I can respond more appropriately, which means that I can be a better steward. I can be a better being in the world and better in the sense, not of like, again, up and to the right. It's better just in terms of being able to meet, meet life and meet the moments in life with more clarity and presence and effectiveness. And in that process, I believe we're all contributing to a more beautiful world, essentially. Not always a more happy, like light world, right? So that implies some darkness too, but a more beautiful world in all of its shades and colors. Because I think otherwise, unless it is that 360 approach, and I'm not about to go absolute on a, on something here, but unless it is that there will continuously be coping mechanisms or a deception within a relationship of trying not to show one particular thin thing, like even if it's only going back to your, your pie analogy of uh, experience, even if it's only a very thin sliver of it, that still creates a whole mechanism and strategy around how do I keep this part away mm -hmm. from the light? Right. Like how do I, right. how do I guard this other person from seeing it? And it's not in this judgment of the fact that you're doing it. It's, it's a very human thing. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a really humbling experience to start to go into these places and then realize that you, that I didn't see some of what were my coping mechanisms for really really obvious stuff like you know psychology 101 stuff you know like and just to go wow isn't because then even when you've realized you've done it once i i love this it seems like the in your process that you're describing there there's a deep sense of curiosity like you're mm -hmm. you're finding out new information and new not in this very deliberately kind of mechanistic way right. but you're excited to find new information because new experience or to feel new experiences, to gather more um, of a holistic experience of life, once again, it's just, it just allows for this kind of, I'm a bit reticent to use the word transformation just because I don't like how it's used so, so loosely. Um, but literally to, to process these what were like pain points into like an expansive kind of creation or into something where, wherever it will go, as you say, this, none of this guarantees, um, sunshine and rainbows and buttercups every moment of life, because then it wouldn't be the, the full experience again. It would be an attachment to a, you know, an air quotes, positive outcome, a moment of growth, a moment of development. I think the irony here is, and it's not in this deliberately kind of hoodwinking way, I won't be attached to development. That's because I know how you, that's how you get development, right? You, you, you know, almost like in that spiritual manifestation way, I'll, I'll let go of my attachment to possessions because that's how you get abundance, right? <laughs> you, you know, not in, not in that kind of way. But ironically, I do think it is a 
just by virtue of being able to see more of yourself, engage with more of yourself, it will give more space for different outcomes, different however it may be, but different from where the present moment is, where when we're really leaning in on some of these strategies, hey, that's all we, that's almost all we can reach for. It, it just, it opens up, going back to your idea at the start of looking at these grayed out um, options on a menu, it just starts to light those up. Mm-hmm. Right. And as you said, you have so much more information available at your disposal which is why i think this type of work is so essential for for leaders as well because we're in the business world where and in much of society today that is this certain addiction to information right and there's equivocation between more information means better because you can make better choices and to a certain extent i'd agree with that but what are we actually classifying here as information? Yeah. Is that only numerical data or quote unquote objective facts, whatever that is, right? Or can we include as embodied information and sensing that's always available to us? It's always there at our disposal if we can open ourselves up to it. Uh, And so, yeah, there's so much curiosity there, I believe. Uh, which comes back to the original questions here of like, what even is all this and, and what's here? <laughs> so, so yeah, if, 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 in, in five words, if you can tell us what, what even is this? <laughs> I think it's above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> and I've heard it said, mm, Well, let me backtrack. I, I feel like to a certain extent, I'm again spiraling around the same themes and notions here. Uh, yeah, that is because they still feel so important to me here. But there's a way in which one can relate to what we call life, this experience of life from a very distant, separate stance, from an I it stance, from a left hemisphere stance where we say that all of this is nothing but, and by the way, nothing but is a, is a hint or a, a giveaway, right? That you're in the realm of the left hemisphere and the I it stands. It's nothing but epiphenomena of atoms and molecules and stuff, essentially. Right? That all of this, everything we're experiencing, whether the rocks we see or our internal experience and sensations and emotion is nothing but epiphenomenon of hormones firing, neurotransmitters, all a result of our kind of internal mechanistic processes, right? And the beauty we experience is nothing but the illusions of our own mind and so on and so forth, right? There's a way in which one can relate to life in this way. I think this is the way in which we are taught, especially in school, to relate to life. That is what life is. And yet this is just one way in which we can relate to life. I'm not saying any of that is necessarily wrong, but it's not the whole story either. 
and the, there's a way in which you one can relate to life like what all of this is or one relates to it as being inherently and inevitably bound up with an immense amount of meaning and depth where there is an intrinsic value an inherent value and purpose to each and every thing and experience we encounter that everything is rather than being an illusion it's like oversaturated with meaning and and depth and that all of this is not a random it's not a random kind of mistake it's a very beautiful thing and not because i say it's beautiful but because it simply is <laughs> and here again words become a bit difficult but what i'm pointing at is that there's a way in which we can relate to life which values what we're experiencing in a completely different way than that first one where the value of it is not something we project onto it but it's something inherent to it and i think this is what any and all spiritual traditions are, are pointing at and i think we're we're deeply and profoundly mistaken if we ignore that but instead there's a way in which we can integrate uh, what we know from science but also what we know spiritually to provide a better and broader picture of what is all of this You know, I, I don't know about you, but I think even in what I started reading of uh, Buber and where he kind of alludes to where our awareness of something divine can be experienced. But when I'm in a deep, connected conversation with somebody, I don't need to be told a mental model or a list of criteria that needs to be met. I feel like when I'm truly there in a conversation with another human being, like this can happen, you know, in all sorts of moments where we can experience awe or whatever it may be. It could even be if I'm walking my dog and I'm just really presently aware and observing her. It can be in many different things, but for me, particularly a, a quality of conversation or a, it's, it, that, that makes it sound a little bit too reductive, but, you know, bear with the, the clunky description, but I, I feel something so clearly in that space that I, I don't even need the justification or the understanding or the interpretation of it. Right. To know, because I think that's an element of when we're relating to life, life can, life can become too much of a story, right? Like we connect the dots of our, I did this and then this happened and that's why I'm here and that's why this is important to me. Um, or we may follow a, an approach to life which someone says, you do this at this age, you do this at that age, and if you're doing all these things well, that's a good life. But I think there's something... You know, when you're talking about opening up to more of life, opening up to the intimacy of life, even the need to justify one's intuition around what it could be or mm -hmm. couldn't be, that dissipates 
because the moments are felt so uniquely and strongly that even if I'm having a, a crappy day and I engage into something like this, I'm just like, oh man, there's, there's something beyond what I can fully capture here. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful as you describe it. And that resonates with, with my experience as well. That in those moments of intimacy, there is nowhere to get to. <laughs> and there is no need to justify it or explain it. Because it is. And the isness of it is more than enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I strongly believe that this is where these questions I think have immense consequential importance for for us as a, as humanity and as a, as stewards of the planet, which is the more we can actually become intimate with life, the more we're okay being here and okay where we are. And the more that happens, the less the the less urge and need there is to get somewhere else, whether that's up and to the right, or that vacation on that island over there, or all of those riches on the other side of building that massive business that extracts all of these resources from the planet. Right. And if this is not a case for 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 excluding uh important uh projects and businesses in the world that's not what i'm saying but what i'm saying is that those projects and those endeavors change in how they are engaged with if there is that fundamental sense of trust and again this is a kind of okayness in the moment if it's coming from that place then the choices that are made are incredibly different than if they're coming from a place of scarcity and it's not okay and it's not enough. And so I need to make more in order to compensate for that not enoughness. You know, it's interesting when kind of contemplating what the, what the world may require in order for us to break certain habits or approaches to life and to prioritize other things. I'm always filled with immense optimism for human beings just because even within really bad situations, there can be incredible humanity shown, there can be connection, there can be love. And I think even when humans experience great suffering, that can that's in in my experience anyway that's been the the impetus to reflect to to go inwards to observe to try to become try to pay more attention to what's here what's happening now and i just i i think I, once again i don't want to say something is the only way something can be but i really do believe that if people did get more intimate with life in however way that may emerge that so much of our actions are driven by this lack of connection, this mm -hmm. this lifelessness, this this graying out of options on the menu. 
and we're not even aware of it and we've just we've absorbed this way of approaching life because that's the way it is even if it's outdated to what the present needs of ourselves or our planet presently are but I, yeah i really think that there's it's not just a f- the contagion almost <laughs> not to make this to send uh, like some virus or something but the contagion like the 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 ripples out from this getting pre- getting this okayness with being here now this okayness with m- myself being here now i think there's pretty profound implications in terms of a a wider coming to intimacy for for people in general because i think a lot of the things that we previously obsessed over or desired the attachment to those things doesn't go i'm not saying it just dissipates completely or disappears completely but it it fizzles out a little bit more like i i I think into i don't know more kind of sustainable i don't want to make it sound too much in 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 that sense but like to just a, a level where it's just not this kind of insatiable desires that we're driven by there's we're not as you said like when you're in that moment with somebody where there's intimacy you're not looking to go anywhere you're not looking right. to be something else and and i think right. that's such a fundamental driver of so much of our yeah. of our behaviors yeah. yeah yeah right yeah i couldn't agree more and that means actually feeling 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 the pain really feeling mm. what's not being felt both within oneself but also collectively and and this is where that curiosity and and compassion is so important uh because once we start feeling that pain that difficulty then we're becoming more intimate and when we're doing that then we're then we're slowly starting to unwind and release those those strategies and patterns you're talking about which were in service of protecting from that pain but uh for me that's that's why this this everything we're talking about here is not easy because it means feeling all of that but yeah i think the more you do this the more there becomes an intolerability with not feeling it alex i'm i'm sorry to bring time back into the equation here <laughs> <laughs> but uh <laughs> because i want to be respectful of whatever commitments you may have today i I just, you know, in terms of what we've been discussing today, like, you know, I, I, I don't like to just kind of throw this question in clunkily at the end because I just, I, lo- I loved where the direction or the, the flow of this conversation and whatever else, but just given what you've been talking about, like, you know, coming into this okayness with, well, first even acknowledging what's here, dropping down a little bit. And being okay with ourselves in the moment, uh, you know, touching on elements of somehow, you know, not stripping out the like almost this feeling of aliveness in life, like not deadening ourselves to things, not reducing or limiting our our range of experience or places where we'll go or won't go. You know, ob- obviously, with so many of the themes from either your book or even the work of of Buber and just focusing on or the the focus on the the way in which we relate to other people how we show up to these spaces how much willingness or how much willing not even a willingness but perhaps maybe a willingness to to be intimate uh, to 
to be there fully with someone the the kind of transformation transformation transformative elements of what can happen in these spaces even without a direct intention of some going or going somewhere or needing to go somewhere and then this huge sense obviously of of curiosity which you're you're bringing to your approach to life as well and if i could so clunkily ask you at the end of such a, a wonderful wonderfully wandering conversation what what is a good life for you alex <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's lovely to to hear those themes being played back and i i think it's uh i mean it's your podcast you can ask what you want but uh <laughs> <laughs> but also it does it does force right a, a certain reflection about given all, everything we've discussed what does that actually mean in terms of living and living well and it's a great question uh a first response that comes up is that uh, to ask oneself that question is probably a good step to to even be aware of that there is a question what is a good life is one worth pursuing and i think of this in several ways i mean obviously many of the things we've talked about uh, are relevant right um a good life for me is not one which is happy and positive it's one in which every moment is felt to its fullest extent, which means including a lot of tragedy and, and heartbreak uh, because that is the cost of what it means to be, to be connected and to love and be loved and to live in love, as Buber says. There, there is no way in which that happens without some heartbreak and pain along the way. And living one's, let's say, fullest self also means maybe disappointing other people. It means feeling into and feeling fears that have been blocking or been in it's not that the fear is blocked it probably blocked the fear and that's why it's been blocking you but nevertheless feeling that which has been in the way and then moving beyond that and living more more fully as a result most of these things are not necessarily pleasant right and yet i i deeply believe that these are part of what it actually means to live a full full life and I notice I'm saying that a full life here is a good life. And maybe there is something to that. Uh, and just one final thought here on good. I've been writing a piece on ethics that I'll be posting probably after the summer. And there's a way in which you can look at the good in a, what's called a utilitarian way. Right? consequential way or an instrumental way where the good is either the the kind of the the greatest quantifiable amount to the greatest amount of people that is what is good right. but that can lead you to some dark places sometimes where you end up justifying bad things in the name of something better 
And I think something that I'm very much called towards is to live in alignment with what the mystics called natural law, which is not a, a subjective good. It's not good because I think it is. It's good because it simply is good. And if we open ourselves up to feel more of life, I believe we can start to feel more of what we might call a natural law, where there are things that are kind of morally, again, not, not based on an external imposition or rule, but simply because and how they are experienced, that something is good. Now, to give some kind of list of what this entails is, again, way above my pay grade. But as a question, I find it incredibly helpful. Like, what is actually good in this moment? Not what is instrumentally good. Not what in terms of what will get me the most out of this situation. Or what will be best for you. It's none of that. It's also all of that. It's like, what is good here? And so maybe and a continuous and ongoing inquiry into that question perhaps might lead oneself to what we might call a good life. But I really appreciate the question because I haven't put words on it in that way before. So, yeah, uh, I'm very grateful for that. I, I uh, really appreciate the, the answer and I'm very grateful for your, your time today, Alex. Look, I've, I've once again enjoyed the hell out of this conversation with you, sir. Um, and look, I'm, I'm very grateful that you joined us here on the What is a Good Life podcast today. I think you've really captured the essence of something that if, if people are to pay attention to the conversation, there'll be a lot to take, for, to take from it as well. So mm. thank you very much, Alex. And, uh, and uh, I look forward to, to staying in touch. Yeah, likewise. Really enjoyed this. And I think you really exemplified also some of what we've been talking about in terms of creating just a space where anything and everything is welcome. I find myself saying things I haven't said before and uh, attending to these topics in new and fresh ways. And I think that's a testament to, to the space you create here. So thank you so much for, for inviting me in and looking forward to, to wherever these threads lead us from here. Much appreciate, Alex. All the best.